This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. Today's our final episode over uh, Ibsen's scandalous play, A Doll's House, a play that has shocked the world for a hundred years. And we've been trying very carefully to conceal the ending of this play in case you hadn't read or watched it, but now we are going to have to open with the comment that there will be finale spoilers in this episode. <laughs> well, you know, it has been 100 years. There's been time and opportunity. That's true. If you haven't read it by now, anyway. Uh, but it hasn't been 100 years for me. And honestly, depending on where you got your education, you may have had the misfortune of missing out on this piece of literature in your secondary or post-secondary education. True, true. And I don't mean to sound like a snob. For sure. The good Lord knows I'm most certainly not a person to brag about an exceptional education. In fact, in case you've ever wondered, that's the reason we started this podcast. Both Gary and I uh, feel like a lot of us that we have holes in our educational experience. Gary lived in a small town with a small school, and I changed schools 11 times during my 12 years. So when podcasting came around, we thought we'd try to support people just like us who love learning, be it traditional students, adult learners, or those of you who are learning English as a second language. But enough about us. Let's get on to Ibsen. I don't know if we mentioned this before. In fact, I don't, I'm pretty sure we didn't. Uh, Ibsen wrote A Doll's House in Italy, not in his native Norway, more specifically from the Luna Conventu Hotel on the beautiful Almafi Coast. <laughs> you mean near the place where they filmed the Amazon scenes for Wonder Woman? Yes, actually, I think you've got the general idea, and I'm pretty sure they filmed the talented Mr. Ripley there, too, with Matt Damon. Oh, yeah, you're right, and, and if you uh, Google Amalfi Coast, it certainly will look familiar. I mean, lots of movies have used that remarkable coastline with the uh, beautiful homes 
overlooking the water. So um, although a doll's house isn't set in Italy, it's not surprising that Ibsen was still influenced by this remarkable place. Yes, and I looked it up in Fodor's Travel Guide because I've never been there. And man, this place is inspirational. The cliffs, the water, and the dances. Mm -hmm. (laughs) In this case, the Tarantella. Of course, this is speculation on my part, and I'm going to dream up a little bit. But in my mind, I can see Ibsen mulling around the Amalfi Coast, kind of still angry about what happened to his dear friend, Laura Peterson Keller, thinking about her story and how he wants to make a play at it. And then he sees dancers dancing, the Tarantella, the passion, the frenetic energy, the sexuality. And he's thinking, yes, that's going in my play. There's Nora. <laughs> there you go. Well, that's a nice recreation of events that may or may not have happened. Probably but, not. <laughs> uh, since we're going that direction, uh, can I recommend one more detail? Well, of course. Throw your, throw your part in. Well, as this is part of Italy that exports limoncello around the world, oh. maybe we should imagine Ibsen drinking some limoncello on top of this. Most definitely. Drinking limoncello, watching the Tarantella, inspired indeed. It's perfect. <laughs> so back to the play. I know I'm distracted, but who's not distracted by the Amalfi Coast? Gary, let's get to speed. Where are we exactly in this play as we round the curve to the third and final episode? All right, we are at the Tarantella, but recapping slightly, we may recall Act 1 basically was about the good life. Everything was wonderful, 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 to use Noah's words. I'm glad you said it that way, because that was something I wanted to point out last week, but didn't. Ibsen is so deliberate with his word choice, and he really plays around with the repetition of key ideas throughout the play, and he uses words. This is one of them. Wonderful. We'll see. He does it again with sorrow. And at the end, he uses the word miracle. But so I eject back to wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. (laughs) Well, in many ways, their lives uh, were wonderful. Torvald has a new job with the prospects of big money. The space in their home is beautiful. The Christmas tree is beautiful. Nora is beautiful. They're on track to be at the top of their social system. And she's even in a position to help her friend Christine, who's financially out of luck, help her uh, really enter into the good life by getting her a, a job with Torvald's office. And it's all good until Krogstad, the villain. His, <laughs> his name sounds like a villain. I know. Well, he enters the house and he interrupts all that goodness with a threat. Either help me get a job or I'll expose your crime. crime. I will shame you. <laughs> So we talked about Act 2 being less about the material aspects of life and more about the psychological ones. And Act 2 is basically a sequence of dialogues uh, that are less about material success but more about psychological distress, which, you know, I'm a fan of. So we're, Oh, you're a fan of distress? <laughs> in, in literature. So uh, we are taking back, peeling back the layers of the surface uh, of success and looking beyond that. Well, indeed, and what we learn is, as is all of life, not everything is as it appears in Act 1. Things have the potential of turning dark, and that's illustrated in the lights, even. Dr. Rank is in the last stage of his life. Krogstad is committed to exposing Nora, at least to her husband. She and Krogstad talk about suicide, but even that, he claims, won't fix her problem. Nora uses the word wonderful again in Act 2, but the wonderful thing in Act 2 
would be for her secret crime to be exposed to her husband, but he take it and take the blame for it. We mentioned that the central metaphor of the second act is the Tarantella, but how can we connect all that we just talked about to a dance? Gary, give us a little history and context of this famous dance, and then maybe we can try to understand how Ibsen is turning it into a symbol and developing it into an important idea here at the end of Act Two. Yeah, the the Tarantella is a fun expression of uh, cultural folklore from this area of the Amalfi Coast, and it can be done by a single person, like in a doll's house, but it's more often done by um, couples or groups of dancers, and the women will wear traditional costumes. Usually they are uh, white with gathered skirts and white aprons and a scarf around the neck and uh, if men are also dancing which is the more common way to dance it they wear specially made shoes and three-quarter pants a black vest and generally a little cap there are usually tambourines and chestnuts involved and it's not associated really with any holiday or event and if you google it you'll see lots of pictures of it being performed at celebrations like weddings and it's a circle dance with lots of whirling and flirtatious glances and close approaches and it's it's fast paced and it picks up speed as the dances go through the steps what makes the tarantella an interesting choice for this play is the mythical origins of the dance and the connection to a form of hysteria called tarantism Hysteria brings me back to the old crucible and all of our discussions about hysterias around the world. Well, you know, I'm a fan of social psychology and I love hysterias because when you get in groups to act crazy. <laughs> you love distress and now hysterias. Yeah, so it, it reminds me of uh, in 1518 of the uh, the dancing plague that broke out in Strasbourg, France during that time period. People were dancing to death. So really interesting. So, uh, But like we discussed in the Crucible series, uh, hysterias can be really odd phenomena. And, and this one is no exception. Uh, the Neapolitan Tarantella is the dance of the victim of the tarantula spider bite. It's this uh, delirious attempt of the body to rid itself of the tarantula poison. And according to legend, the Tarantella is a death dance. And uh, the tarantula, according to legends from this area, bites its victims. And the only way to get rid of the poison is to dance in a frenzy, allowing your body to sweat out the poison. Well, the music is very lively, and the dancing is very sensual and seductive. And when I looked at the YouTubes on the internet, I really think I've seen this performed at Bush Gardens in Williamsburg in the <laughs> oh Italian my section. There you go. Another interesting feature is that Tarantellas were written for the piano by composers most of us heard of, like Chopin. And we even played a part of one uh, as the intro for the series. When we drop into the last part of Act 2, we see Ibsen use this dance as a big feature to highlight a lot about humans that is obviously self-contradictory. And I think the Tarantella does express a lot of human self-contradictions here. This dance, in one sense, is clearly a means of seduction. And in that way, it kind of represents the Helmer's marriage. Nora pleased Torvald. She probably manipulated him through affected performances like we see here, dressed as a young Neapolitan fisher. This was their past and the arrangement that they had made, maybe although it was unspoken in their marriage. So in one sense, it embodies what she's always thought she wanted and how she knew she could get what she wanted. However, 
it's not right and something's gone awry. Now Nora finds herself contemplating suicide. And this is also reflected in the dance. She dances without any rule. It's frenetic. And Torval finds that part of it entirely unpleasant. If we think of the Tarantella as this sort of symbol of this marital arrangement that these two had, we can see that it's not working anymore. And Ibsen is really addressing something uh, that contemporary psychologists today would readily acknowledge, the, the idea that humans absolutely need intimacy. And uh, sexual fondness and social success can be a lot of fun, and everyone understands that, but it doesn't produce any sense of belonging. It requires some mutual understanding, interdependence, it involves vulnerability and Trust and, uh, you know, the freedom to be honest and safety from judgment, mutual respect. I mean, these are the things that build deep bonds and meaningful marriages. Ibsen is highlighting almost as if he had a psychology textbook in front of him. Oh, my. (laughs) That this marriage lacks every single one of those characteristics. (laughs) Nor is alone. She's psychologically alone and she's beginning to understand how really isolating this dollhouse life really is. And uh, as fun, as enjoyable as uh, the, all the friends' benefits may be. But let me point out one other thing specifically about this dance. If you just want to look at the mythology of the dance itself, in a historical sense, the Tarantella dance has really a power to heal. And it's the body's way of ridding itself of the spider's toxins. And I don't know how far you know that we can take the symbolism here, but it's clear even to me as the uh, non-literature person on board that this dance does seem to have the same effect on Nora. I mean, I know I'm getting into act three a little bit, but the Nora that emerges from the Tarantella dance is mature. She is not the pre Tarantella doll that she used to be. Well, that's it. Exactly. I mean, the Tarantella dance is in some ways, you know, a play within a play. It expresses Nora, the two faces of Nora. It's her laughter. It's her frenzy. It's also her transformation And really the transformation of the entire feel of the play moving forward. Let's read the end of Act 2 as Nora finishes her rehearsal dance for Rank and Torvald. Not so fast. Not so fast. I can't help it. Not so wild, Nora. This is how it has to be. No, no, that won't do at all. Didn't I tell you? Let me play for her. Yes, do. Then I'll be better able to tell her what to do. Rank sits down at the piano and plays. Nora dances more and more. Helmer stands by the stove, giving her repeated direction as she dances. Her hair comes undone. It falls about her shoulder. She pays no attention to him and goes on dancing. Mrs. Lynn will enter. Ah! See what fun we're having, Christine? But my dear darling Nora, you are dancing as though your life depended on it. It does. Stop! Rank, this is sheer madness. Stop, I say. I would never have believed it. You have forgotten everything I ever taught you. There you are. You see? Well, some more instruction is certainly needed there. Yes, you see how necessary it is. You must go on coaching me right up to the last minute. Promise me, Torvald. You can rely on me. You mustn't think about anything else but me until after tomorrow night. You mustn't open any letters. You mustn't touch the letterbox. Ah, You are still frightened of what that man might... Yes. Yes, I am. I can see from your face there's already a letter there from him. I don't know. I think so. But you mustn't read anything like that. 
We don't want anything horrid coming between us until this is over. I shouldn't cross her. The child must have her way, but tomorrow night, when your dance is done... Then you are free. There you go. (laughs) And Ibsen, the master of theatrical tension, ends the act with Rank and Torvald leaving through one door and Christine telling Nora that Krogstad has left town, but he has deposited the letter that will expose it all. And I want to point out something. There are a lot of doors in this play. (laughs) There really are. There are four doors to this set. One door in the left wall leads to the children and the servants' quarters. The door on the right is the Helmer bedroom, where Nora will go in a, in a minute here in Act 3 to change out of her costume. But then you have the two doors in the back, and these are the fateful doors. The one on the left is Torval's study. This represents his authority, his privacy, his male aloofness, if you will. People enter that door only with his explicit permission. He decrees all from that door. The stage actually very much feels like a waiting room to that room. It's an antechamber if you want to think of his you know, office as an old-fashioned courtroom. Again, like you saw in Act 3, The Crucible. But Torvald's presence is always in the living room, even though he's behind the door. But then you have the door on the back right. And this is the one where the people go into the outside world. But damaged people come in through it. Imperfect people like Christine and Krog's dad and Rank. People who have been beaten up by that outside world. Outside the dollhouse. What we're going to see here in this third act is a series of reversals. And even the set will reflect these reversals. That door will not bring in misery. It will be an exit for Nora's freedom. The other door will be the miserable one. And we shouldn't forget that the title of the play is A Doll's House or A Doll House, depending on who's translating the title. But in both cases, the title draws attention to the place, not Nora. We're supposed to be paying attention to this physical place, this artificial place that these people have built. Well, one of the things that I like about Ibsen is that Ibsen in this play... uh, But from my understanding, all of his plays are like this. He really stays away from oversimplified conclusions like all men are bad or all men are tyrants (laughs) or marriage is a patriarchal construct to keep women in bondage. I mean, that's why he didn't want to be called a propagandist. And there is a dialectic here. This is where you have two big ideas that must emerge and bring out a third, more complicated one. There's an evolutionary process going on, and uh, he's challenging our thinking and and maybe even our lifestyles with serious questions. But there is a lot of uncertainty as to what the solutions might be. I know. And although this play feels very realistic, and in a sense it is very realistic. It's set in middle-class household with middle-class values about middle-class life. But in another sense, it's not realistic at all. It's somewhat epic and representational. All of these life struggles are squished into really three days, and that's not realistic. In real life, Nora wouldn't change as much as we're going to see her change over the course of three days. But, you know, how long of a play do you want it to be? (laughs) Nora represents this evolutionary process, and in that sense, she's more of an archetype than she is a representation of a real person. 
Indeed, and and lots of people have these kinds of awakenings, but yes, that process is usually much slower than uh, the three days of Christmas. And uh, for me, the action of the third act is very exciting because it condenses a lot of things in this final day, and the pace really picks up from here all the way to the scandalous finale. Well, the third act has a round table at the center of it, and this is kind of, you want to think of it as the metaphor for the third act. This is the only time Nora might be off stage, by the way, here at the beginning in most productions. From here on out, we are going to be consciously aware that we are witness to two couples, and both of them have a lot to talk about. Both will have these discussions around the round table, but one will resolve in restoration, the other in deconstruction. In this first discussion, Krogstad and Christine talk about their place in the world and what they want from the world. Through this conversation, they make very specific decisions and move toward emotional intimacy. They will both express vulnerability, trust, the freedom to be honest, safety from judgment, mutual respect, that list that you gave us before. We're given a real understanding that they have a road to build a deep bond in a meaningful marriage. Let's, let's read that, this discussion. We have a great deal to talk about. I shouldn't have thought so. That's because you never really understood me. What else was there to understand apart from the old, old story? I mean, a heartless woman throws a man over the moment something more profitable offers itself. Do you really think I'm so heartless? Do you think I found it easy to break it off? Didn't you? You didn't really believe that. If that wasn't the case, why did you write to me as you did? There was nothing else I could do. If I had to make a break, I felt it my duty, bound to destroy any feelings that you had for me. So that's how it was. And all that was for money. You mustn't forget I had a helpless mother and two young brothers. We couldn't wait for you, Nils. At that time, you hadn't much immediate prospect of anything. That may be, but you had no right to throw me over for somebody else. Well, I don't know. Many's the time I've asked myself whether I was justified. When I lost you, it was just as if the ground had slipped away from under my feet. And look at me now, a broken man clinging to the wreck of his life. Help might be near. It was near. Then you came along and got in the way. Quite without knowing, Nils, I only heard today that it's you— I'm supposed to be replacing at the bank. If you say so, I believe you. But now you do know. Aren't you going to withdraw? No, that wouldn't benefit you in the slightest. Benefit? Benefit? I would do it just the same. I have learned to go carefully. Life and hard, bitter necessity have taught me that. And life has taught me not to believe in pretty speeches. The life has taught you a very sensible thing, but deeds are something you surely must believe in. How do you mean? You said you were like a broken man clinging to the wreck of his life. And I said it with a good reason. And I am like a broken woman clinging to the wreck of her life. Nobody to care about and nobody to care for. It was your own choice. At the time, there was no other choice. Well, what of it? Nils, what about us two castaways joining forces? What's that you say? Two of us on one wreck surely stand a better chance than each on his own. Christine. Why do you suppose I came to town? You mean you thought of me? Without work, I couldn't live. All my life I have worked. For as long as I can remember, that has always been my one great joy. 
But now I'm completely alone in the world and feeling horribly empty and forlorn. There's no pleasure in working only for yourself, Nils. Give me somebody and something to work for. I don't believe all this. It's only a woman's hysteria wanting to be all magnanimous and self-sacrificing. Have you ever known me hysterical before? Would you really do this? Tell me, do you know all about my past? Yes. And you know what people think about me? Just now you hinted you thought you might have been a different person without me. I'm convinced I would. Couldn't it still happen? Christine, you know what you are saying, don't you? Yes, you do. I can see you do. Have you really the courage? I need someone to mother, and your children need a mother. We two need each other. Nils, I have faith in what deep down you are. With you, I can face anything. Thank you. Thank you, Christine. And I'll soon have everybody looking up to me, and I'll know the reason why. Ah, oh, but I was forgetting. Hush, the Tarantella. You must go. And, of course, it is after this conversation that Krogstead tells Christine that he will demand his letter back from Torvald. He doesn't want to expose Nora anymore. And what is so ironic is that it is Christine that pushes for exposing the secret. So let's read that. No, Nils, don't ask for it back. But wasn't that the very reason you got me here? Yes, that was my first reaction, but that was yesterday. And it's quite incredible the things I've witnessed in this house in the last 24 hours. Helmer must know everything. This unhappy secret must come out. Those two must have the whole thing out between them. All this secrecy and deception, it just can't go on. This play is about Nora. This play is about her marriage, her life, her vision of the world. One that a lot of people have accepted as the best path to a happy life. But here in Act 3, we see Ibsen really being rhetorical. He's challenging this widely accepted view of the world. He's arguing hard against the conventional wisdom, not just of his time, but the conventional wisdom of a lot of people now, still 100 years later, whether we want to admit it out loud or not. He's contrasting two visions of the world, two perspectives on marriage. Here we see a couple with intellectual compatibility and respect. They will take risks, but they will see each other as equals. There is love here. There's real intimacy that's developing, and we don't see sexual or financial power being exercised by either party over either party. The shipwrecked survivors will live and work for each other, as they've stated. But what do you think about Christine making this choice to not save Nora and pressuring her into something like she has. In your perspective, is she betraying her friend? Well, uh, to answer your first question, I was very surprised when I first saw it. And as for the second, I have little doubt um, if Nora had known Christine was making this decision for her, she most definitely would have seen it as a betrayal. Well, who wouldn't? It's a little patronizing. I mean, Christine has an opportunity to save her friend, and she chooses not to because she thinks she knows what's better for her friend than her friend does. If it were me, I'd be mad, and I would say, that is not your decision. (laughs) (laughs) Well, another thing I noticed because of this focus on emotional intimacy between Christine and Krogstad um, is Ibsen's deliberate attempt to create distance between Torvald and Nora Uh, through this heightened sexuality between the two of them. And uh, it's almost a little awkward to watch as a drunk Torvald clearly and 
coarsely sexualizes his wife and objectifies his wife, but uh, there's no sense of emotional intimacy. It's only physical, and it's his fantasy about a lovely little Capri girl. Be my capricious little Capri girl. I know. He wants to pretend that she's basically a stranger. He literally says, I pretend that we are just leaving our wedding, and I'm taking you to our new home for the first time. Nora is a beautiful body, but she's not a person, not really. She's his wife, so he thinks he has a legal right to sexual favors because he's purchased them for himself, and he wants to cash in on this expensive pleasure. And this, of course, is where I see Ibsen's feminism. I mean, he's challenging this view of women and this view of marriage. And Yeah, I, I agree with you. Uh, I mean, obviously... Sexual power is the easiest and most accessible form of power for girls. And if you don't agree with that, look at any number of high school or college girls' Instagram posts where they're standing in front of a mirror, taking a picture of themselves, looking somewhat sexual for this mysterious virtual audience. (laughs) And so many young girls begin to really understand that their sexuality is a powerful tool and they're they're interested in seeing how far they can go with this. And this seems to have been Nora's experience. And it's how she's gotten the life that she has, how she got the status, the children, and the comfortable life. But Ibsen, as a true feminist, is really challenging that entire dynamic. And Nora is questioning, uh, is this who she is? Is this who she, does it even work? And she's going to uh, really upturn the entire thing from both ends. Yes, and this dollhouse is getting ready to collapse, and everything is ironic. First, Dr. Rank comes in. Torvald, with all of his arrogance about being so worldly, has no idea about this coded conversation going back between his wife and his friend. For Torvald, Rank is keeping him from his fantasy with Nora. For Nora, Torvald is keeping her away from saying a real goodbye to a close friend. She lights Dr. Rank's cigar and tells him to sleep well. This is one of those closing scenes that actors and producers could really do a lot with because most of it is silent. How much sexual tension do you want to create between Rank and Nora? How much do you want Torvald to be noticing of it? You know, it it really doesn't matter. Uh, Torvald could never be jealous of Rank because no matter how much Rank loved Nora... She isn't his. She belongs to Torvald. In fact, the fact that Nora is such a sexual prize clearly makes Torvald proud. Uh, The conversation between Nora and Torvald, um, where Torvald dispassionately finds Rank's visiting card with a black X on it, it makes Torvald really look pretty genuinely heartless. Yes, and there is more than just black X's in this scene. That card is black, But Nora now puts a black coat over her dancing costume. Things are getting darker. Torvald leaves the room for his study to read his letters. And it is not long until he bursts back in. And in this time, he develops, really, this unbridled rage. These speeches hurt to hear. I don't care how many times you've heard them before. Torvald. Miserable woman. What is this you have done? Let me go. I won't have you taking the blame for me. You mustn't take it on yourself. Stop play acting. You are staying here to give an account of yourself. Do you understand what you have done? Answer me. Do you understand? Yes, now. I'm, I'm really beginning to understand. Oh, what a 
terrible awakening this is. All these eight years, this woman who was my pride and joy, a hypocrite, a liar, worse than that, a criminal. Oh, how utterly squalid it all is. Ugh, I should have realized something like this would happen. I should have seen it coming. All your father's irresponsible ways. Quiet! All your father's irresponsible ways are coming out in you. No religion, no morals, no sense of duty. Oh, this is my punishment for turning a blind eye to him. It was for your sake I did it, and this is what I get for it. Yes, this. Now you have ruined my entire happiness, jeopardized my whole future. It's terrible to think of. Here I am at the mercy of a thoroughly unscrupulous person. He can do whatever he likes with me. He can demand anything he wants or to be about, just as he chooses. And I daren't even whimper. I am done for, a miserable failure, and it's all the fault of a feather-brained woman. When I've left this world behind, you will be free. Oh, stop pretending. Your father was just the same, always ready with fine phrases. What good would it do for me if you left this world behind, as you put it? Not the slightest bit of good. He can still let it all come out, if he likes. And if he does, the people might even suspect me of being an accomplice in these criminal acts of yours. They might even think I was the one behind it all, that it was I who pushed you into it. And it's you I have to thank for this. And when I've taken such good care of you all our married life, now do you understand what you have done to me? Yes. I just can't understand it. It's it's so incredible. But we must see about putting things right. Take that shawl off. Take it off, I tell you. I must see if I can't find some way or other of appeasing him. The thing must be hushed up at all costs. And as far as you and I are concerned, things must appear to go on exactly as before. But only in the eyes of the world, of course. In other words, you'll go on living here. That's understood. But you will not be allowed to bring up the children. I can't trust you with them. Oh, that I should have to say this to a woman I love so dearly. The woman I still... Well, that must be all over and done with. From now on, there can be no question of happiness. All we can do is save the bits and pieces from the wreck. Preserve appearances. What's that? So late. How terrible supposing if he should hide, Nora, say you are not well. The maid comes in. It's a note from Mrs. Helmer. Give it to me. Yes, it's from him. You can't have it. I want to read it myself. You read it then. I hardly dare. Perhaps this is the end for both of us. Well, I must know. Nora! Nora, I must read it again. Yes, yes, it's true. I am saved. Nora, I am saved. It is condemning, and it is unforgiving, and he is resolute. Until he's not. Not. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he viscerates Nora, but then he just as quickly turns an about face. After all that judgment, somehow he can forgive her. And he uses the language of I. And he uses the language of salvation. I am saved. He doesn't say you are saved or we are saved. I am saved. It's about him. It's always been about him. It's always only been about him. And now Nora has seen it. And she's changed. Everything has changed. Torvald had his opportunity to produce a miracle, to use their word. And it would be a miracle. And up to that point, Nora believed in that miracle. She believed that, uh, as she put everything on a line to save Torvald's life, 
that he would do the same for her. Now, Gary, just to try to give Torval a little bit of credit here, although I know he doesn't deserve any, but just for clarification, what would be the actual consequences for them uh, for the if if she had been convicted of forgery from a historical perspective? Is there any way to justifiably view this about being from him? <laughs> Well, uh, that's a good question. And to be honest, I doubt this kind of forgery would be something Krogstad would even try to prosecute. And I don't think the charge would be legally proved either in civil or criminal court. But from what we are led to understand about these men, uh, whether Nora's action is technically or not a crime is really beside the point. It's really about Torvald's embarrassment at having a wife do something like this. And Krogstad is already a source of shame for Torvald at the bank. And how could he be uh, the manager if people knew or, or even if just Krogstad knew this shameful thing about his wife? And this is about Torvald's ego. And pretty much that is all it's about. It, it seems to me that even Nora understands this. And Nora doesn't talk about jail. She's interested in their marriage. And when given the opportunity would Torvald prove to Nora that he really did love her for her? You know, would he prove that she was not an object to be prized, but a person that, to be cherished? And that is the really wonderful thing that Nora really thought she would see. And she wants to be special to someone. She wants someone to love her so much they would sacrifice everything for her. But it didn't happen. Uh, Nora had over-idealized Torvald as much as he had over-idealized her. And they were both dolls. And really, the, the better word may be fantasies. They're both fantasies. And so Nora leaves the room to take off that costume, the pretend dress. She wants to kill the fantasy world. She will come back changed. That's literally the word she used. I'm changed. And now... A second couple will sit down at the, at the round table. They will have their relationship exposed. And uh, unlike Christine and Krogstad, there is no promise of emotional intimacy. I mean, there's no intellectual compatibility. And uh, because of this, there's really no love. And so uh, there is not the really wonderful thing. And Nora now understands this. And what's more... Nora understands that all of the physical comfort in the world will not buy intimacy. And what's more, she understands maybe intuitively that that is something worth having. She doesn't want to be an object, even if she's a beautiful object, even if she's a cherished object. Quote, here's the quote. You two, you only thought how nice it was to be in love with me. That's what she says. And she's talking about her dad and Torvald both as the same. She says this, Daddy used to tell me what he thought, then I would think the same thing. And if I thought differently, I kept quiet about it because he wouldn't have liked it. He used to call me his baby doll, and he played with me as I used to play with my dolls. And then I came to live in your house. Nora opens up for the first time emotionally to Torval around this table. For eight years, I have been waiting patiently. She talked about how she was convinced what she called the miracle would happen and that the miracle would be that her husband would save her. When she makes it very clear, or really when he makes it very clear, that he was only interested in saving himself and he would only save her to the degree that it was himself, 
Nora wakes up. <laughs> Helmer's attempt to defend himself really isn't the best strategy I've ever <laughs> I'd seen. I'd say not. Uh, he defaults to, well, this idea, well, it's what everybody else is doing. And he literally says, nobody sacrifices his honors for the one he loves. Uh, and to me, what he's really saying is no one loves anyone like that. To which Nora challenges his claim. And maybe this is the first time she's challenged him in her entire life. She sees herself as a human. And then she says women are humans in a different way. She says this, hundreds of thousands of women have. And of course, I'll give some guys credit, sweetheart. (laughs) There are hundreds of thousands of men who have sacrificed too. But that's not Ibsen's point. This is about women. (laughs) And just in case you were wondering if Torvald uh, could say anything more stupid, he outdoes himself by responding to Nora by comparing her to a stupid child. Yeah, that really wasn't the smartest comment. I would I would think even if you were about to know that your wife is getting ready to walk out the door and not come back. True. And to me, this insult is one of the strongest indications that he really had no love for Nora as a person at all. And Maybe he has no capacity to love, at least not at this point in his life. And this is uh, one of those places in the play that many people have loved over the years because they understand it. When one person in a marriage or relationship overinvests in a relationship and the other partner does not invest or sacrifice back or reciprocate, you get to this point and it can be a breaking point in a marriage. And although we think of it in terms of women being props for men, We all absolutely know couples in this world where the man is just a prop for the woman and gender-specific aside. I mean, if one person in a marriage confronts the other, that they feel that they are props in their own lives, the other person must respond by offering at least a change and to do something to, to come with some kind of humility. Everyone deserves to be the central character of their own lives. I mean, no one should be a prop or a decoration and Unfortunately, more often than not, what actually happens is what we see here. Instead of using love to hold the marriage together, the abuser uses shame. And using shame or guilt to force a person really that's reached their breaking point is one strategy that pretty much a sure fail every time. What definitely fails here, let me quote, You neither think nor talk like the man I would want to share my life with. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. When you had got over your fright and you weren't concerned about me, but only about what might happen to you, and when all danger was past, you acted as though nothing had happened, I was your little skylark again, your little doll, exactly as before, except you would have to protect it twice as carefully as before, now that it has shown itself so weak and fragile. Torvald... That was the moment I realized that for eight years I'd been living with a stranger and had borne him three children. Oh, I can't bear to think about it. I could tear myself to shreds. Nora is broken, 100% broken. She goes back into that bedroom off stage and comes back with her traveling bag. She is out. She will not even sleep under his roof one more night. She's not even going to say goodbye to her children. And in these final moments, Nora demonstrates that really she has more moral courage than Torvald ever will. And she assumes full responsibility for the failed marriage, 
uh, Torval had always considered a wife to be a grown-up child, but this is reversed. Nora is really the protector here, and the pupil has become the teacher, and the supposed she-child is the grown-up, and she will even protect his ego on the way out the door. And I mean, she's not even going to try to explain herself to the world. Listen, Torvald, from what I've heard, when a wife leaves her husband's house, as I'm doing now, he is absolved by law of all responsibility for her. I can, at any rate, free you from all responsibility. Torvald asks Nora if there was any way she would come back. She begins by saying it would have to be a miracle of miracles, that they would have to have what she called a real marriage. But then she changes her mind because she doesn't believe in miracles. The word miracle is mentioned seven times in nine lines. The final lines of the play go to Torvald. He sinks down on a chair near the door, covers his face with his hands. Gary, read those final lines. Nora! Nora! Empty. She's gone. The miracle of miracles. And then, of course, he is interrupted by that famous door slamming below. She is gone. And thus the debate begins. What means the slamming door? (laughs) (laughs) What does it usually mean? Is this a moment for women to champion their self-actualization? Or is it a moment of a narcissist throwing the ultimate narcissist (laughs) temper tantrum fit? (laughs) There are certainly many ways uh, to look at this. The fact that she slammed the door instead of quietly slipping out makes it even more confusing because slamming doors is something people do out of anger or when they're throwing a fit. And if she's angry, what does she want to happen? Is Nora wanting Torvald to come after her? Is she mad at herself for the life that she's lived and not realized? On the other hand, maybe this slamming door is just supposed to represent finality and really not rage. And uh, Torvald had told her that she was an unfit mother and should have no access to her children. And Nora has always believed Torvald. She also believed, together with Torvald, that her father was responsible for her being a terrible person. If you believe that, would it stand to reason that is an act of love to leave your children, especially if you knew they were well provided for financially as well as emotionally with a, a nanny who spent more time with them than you did, and especially if you knew that you could offer them nothing in this life except suffering? I mean, I guess I can see that. I can also certainly see why the German actress refused to walk out on her children in the play and forced Ibsen to write a different ending for her. It just is unnatural. Until we remember that this is not a play about a child and a mother's relationship with her children. Ibsen is making a comment about what it means to be a fully realized human being and what that looks for for a woman, what it looks for a couple in the context of marriage. And for me, the statement is that marriage without intimacy is nothing. It's almost prostitution. It's a sexual transaction. And apart from a miracle, Nora had to leave to regain her humanity. Staying wasn't an option. Yes. And while uh, a modern audience would cheer for Nora's uh, really exertion of human will, Ibsen's audiences would know better. I mean, opportunities for women in 1879 were almost zero. And Nora, under these circumstances, would have no right to her possessions or even her family's money and everything belonged to Torvald. And a mother tainted by scandal had no right to her children and would even have been blocked from seeing them. I mean, it's no wonder the audience left with such a gasp. 
Well, in fact, Henrietta Frances Lord, she was a translator that lived in Stockholm at the time the play was first performed. She said this, such Furious discussion did Nora rouse when the play came out that many a social invitation given in Stockholm during that winter bore the words, you are requested not to mention Ibsen's dollhouse. Oh, wow. <laughs> that was worse than talking politics, apparently. Uh-huh. It was talking politics. Well, I, I bet a lot of couples probably had to draw similar truces inside their own homes. And yet, that would have made Ibsen the the feminist the happiest, bringing couples to that round table of emotional and intellectual intimacy as a way to build what he called a real marriage is the miracle of miracles, which is exactly what he's endorsing. (laughs) Wow, what a great idea. What a great play. And, um, you know, thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed these discussions of A Doll's House. And as always, if you enjoy our work, please share our work with a friend. Text them an episode. Tweet one on social media. Give us a shout out on your Instagram or Facebook page. Follow us on howtolovelitpodcast.com. It's the only way that we grow. Peace out. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.